Growing up in Spokane, Washington can be tough. But you know what's tougher? Growing up in Spokane, Washington in the 1960s while also being a prophet of death. Follow the childhood hijinks of Lyle Hatcher, a young boy chronically afflicted with, quote, the feeling, as he forms a friendship with David Docky. But David isn't like the other kids. No, it's not because he has muscular dystrophy. David is different because God tells him when people are going to die. But don't worry, this movie isn't really about that. It is really about the joys of childhood friendship and learning to accept difference. Follow Lyle and David as they form an unbreakable bond, mourn the untimely death of their teacher, attempt to seduce one's first girlfriend, put together a school science project, debate the usefulness of ADHD medication, attempt to teach Dave to walk because God said so, and eventually forget all of that other stuff and instead host a fundraiser to find a cure. If you're a person who likes countless obscure plotlines that are never fully resolved, that might make you a different drummer. Welcome to Invalid Culture, a podcast dedicated to excavating the strangest, most baffling, and worst representations of disability in popular culture. Unlike other podcasts that review films you've probably heard of, Invalid Culture is all about looking into the abyss of pop culture adjacent representations that just never quite broke through because, well, they're just awful. Joined today by my co-host, Jeff Preston. Jeff, how are you? Back at it, ready for another uh, another fun day. So I'm Jeff Preston. I am an assistant professor of disability studies. Uh, my research focus is on representations of disability in pop culture. So I am also joined here by my co-host today, Dr. Erica Katzman. How are you, Dr. Katzman? Oh, I am thrilled to be back at this again. Got a great, uh, great conversation ahead of us. Uh, I am... Uh, losing my track of thought on how to introduce myself today. <laughs> um, I am also a, an assistant professor in disability studies, and my research doesn't really focus on uh, so much on the media side of things, but I'm just generally interested in understanding how people think about disability, what kind of stories people are inclined to tell about disability. Now, before we get started today, I think it's important that we start every episode with that uh, that mental health check-in. Uh, Erica, are you regretting doing this yet? Of all of the things in my life that I regret, this is pretty low on the list. Wow, that's that's great. Uh, I'm going to hold that. We'll replay this clip uh, at episode 50 <laughs> when you wonder why why you allowed me to talk you into this. And, and you, are you are you feeling okay about this decision? You know, I I really do question a lot of decisions I've made in my life. Uh, this one's actually pretty high, I think. I don't know that that regret is the right word, but um, it's going to be very interesting to see how our brains are ruined by these films. I think just sadness and rage would be the outcome. If we ever need to rebrand, sadness and rage might be. Might be the name. Rage. So today we have another st just stupendous example of invalid culture. 
we are going to be watching a film which touches the heart, I guess. This is, of course, uh, a movie that you can find on almost every streaming platform, uh, as well as vast majorities of it can be found on YouTube. We are, of course, talking about the film Different Drummers. So what is Different Drummers? How does Different Drummers describe itself? Erica, take it away. From the box, based on an inspiring true story, Different Drummers follows the heartwarming yet unlikely friendship of two boys growing up in Washington in the 1960s. When David, who is bound to a wheelchair and growing weaker from muscular dystrophy, accurately foretells the death of his fourth grade teacher, a doubtful Lyle, who has an increasingly high energy level, decides to test the existence of God by attempting to get David to run again. A pact is made, and Lyle soon begins to twist the rules in a desperate attempt to give his friend some of his own excess energy. Along the way, the two boys come face to face with life's most, most painful truths, and Lyle's question is ultimately answered in a way he never could have imagined. I think this is a phenomenal place for us to start. Because if you were listening to that and have no idea what the beginning, middle, end of this film is, I think the back of this box captured the viewing experience of different drummers. It captures a lot more than I would have imagined. I mean, I, I, I don't want to launch into um, the, our themes quite yet, but I'm, I'm amazed to see them surfacing here. It, it's almost as though they understood what they were doing. Maybe. You know, th th that is, I think that's a good way of characterizing this particular film. Like this is one where I actually, perhaps more than with others, feel like they might have understood what they were doing. They certainly seem to have some technical abilities. Uh, there was some technical things that were, like, I think it was well lit, like the audio was fine. Uh, <laughs> there was actually some passable CGI in this film. Like there was actually like some production value. Uh, while at the same time, uh, just being very confusing and very all over the place uh, throughout. Uh, I think one of my first questions to you is what question was Lyle trying to get answered? I think the questions were out there. I don't know if they were answered. I mean, they're claiming that the question was answered, but I, I mean... When we get to talking about that very that very blunt answer, I'm not sure which question it is it is meant to answer. To be honest, my other question I had for you on this is: Was their friendship unlikely? Like because it's a wheelchair boy on a walkie. <laughs> there are two young boys who you know appear to be of similar ethnic. They're in the same class. Background. Same age. Class. So there's a whole lot of similarities going on that would lead me to believe that this is a very likely friendship. Yeah, I mean, like, this isn't like a bear becoming friends with a rabbit by any means. No, it, it strikes me as a highly likely friendship. Uh, I, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> right. A completely plausible friendship. I guess that doesn't have the same ring. This is where it is important to, to note, to remember that this is Lyle's story. So yes. If, you know, if we're being told that this was an unlikely friendship, is this, is this Lyle telling us that it was an unlikely friendship, that it, it caught him off guard? Interesting. I would say that Lyle was perhaps not the only person caught off guard 
in this film. I think actually a lot of the reviewers of this film were also caught a little off guard. Now we had some, we have two interesting popular press uh, reviews that we have pulled. One which is really interesting and the other which is quite harsh. <laughs> so we have officially reached our first milestone on this podcast uh, in which we found a uh, somebody who did not like a film featuring a child with a disability. They persevered and they were like, we're going to write bad on it. And that was, shout out to you, Josh Terry, the Deseret News. Here's what he had to say. Poor writing, acting, and execution leaves different dramas impossible to justify. If the weak actors aren't monotoning their standard lines of dialogue, the reasonable actors are stumbling their way through the muddled ones and a myriad cheesy and distracting music passages persistently undermine the whole lot. A simple problem for different drummers is that it is playing out of its league. As a direct-to-video release, it would be passed over as a harmless, low-budget tribute to a boy who lived with muscular dystrophy 50 years ago. But as a major multiplex at nearly $10 a ticket, the film feels painfully out of place. That's harsh. Josh Terry does not care anymore. He is just going to eviscerate anyone involved in this film. Like, I guess this is the point at which it becomes very clear that I am no film critic. I did not think it was that bad. I, I truly, truly did not notice poor acting, muddled delivery. Did you? I think I think this is what happens when you and I don't have a direct financial claim against this film. Mm-hmm. Uh, as 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 people who have paid for uh, Prime Video and are using it for a myriad of other wonderful films, uh, I I think I think Josh Terry here is just feeling really burned for that ten dollars he had to spend. Also, why is the Deseret News not paying for their reviewers to go watch these films? Uh, I, I think he was on about the music. I did, I did, um, the, the music was something. The music felt like the early days of YouTube when people were first getting copyright striped. And then you had all of these like kind of like royalty free or copyleft music that were just like, just adjacent to good that YouTube users started like piling on where you're like, right, this is a classic generic rock song that's completely nondescript and just like a little off. So musically, that's where it was. But lyrically, it was very much tailored. Like, uh, uh, do we know was the the soundtrack must have been custom to this film? I have absolutely no doubt that the Lyle and, and Dawn wrote the music for this film. I have no doubt. And if I'm wrong, I don't want to know. Because in my world, they were in the studio cutting these things up. This is all you need. It's got every emotion you could want to feel through song. It's got it all. Now, Josh Terry wasn't the only review we were able to find. Uh, we also found this very interesting review by uh, Tim or Tom, Tom Krogh. Krogh? How do we say that last name, do you think? Krogh? Kioff? maybe? Kof? It's like one of those Kioff? Sure, TK as he's known by his friends, 
uh, presumably, from the Seattle Times, he had this to say. There's a sense of unstructured play about different drummers, a kind of ambling from one whimsical activity to the next, without much regard for following the rules of tidy, traditional storytelling. TK then goes on to give this film a <laughs> 3 out of 4. So 75%. He was not bothered. He's really more remarking on the unstructured play than critiquing it. He's, he's really Yes, not it was an observation. Yeah. It was an observation. It's like, so I watched, I watched Born on the Fourth of July and there was a man in a wheelchair in it. Three out of four stars. <laughs> now, this was actually something that you had remarked on yourself watching the film, was it not? Yeah, 100%. I felt like the first time I watched this film, and yes, that is a confirmation that I have watched this film more than once. The first time I watched it, I remember feeling like there was like all the movie did was introduce new plot lines. And I don't really remember in the first viewing many of those plot lines being resolved. Now, on a second sober viewing, I've discovered that much like the Canadian Senate, you can understand things better when given time to evaluate things. And in fact, there was some resolution, but by my count, there are approximately seven plot lines that inform this film. So, you know, the movie starts out with this plot line around Lyle having a crush uh, on a girl at school and he wants to dance with her. And then we get our first extremely long musical interlude. Things then change up and move on to, I think our second plot, which is a science project to disprove or prove, I think probably prove is what they were thinking, uh, to prove God's existence, using science to prove God. And then there's sort of this like subplot, I think, under there around David is going to teach, uh, sorry, Lyle is going to teach David how to run. And then we move on to the bug collection. They decide <laughs> they want to collect all of the bugs. That then shifts very quickly into raising money to cure muscular dystrophy, which I guess is maybe a continuation of the teaching to run subplot, but I don't think it is uh, because that, of course, it culminates in this like variety show fundraiser, which is kind of its own thing. We then about halfway through the movie, maybe a little more than halfway through the movie, we get this very serious plot around ADHD and medication uh, and this huge debate as to whether or not Lyle should be medicated. Lyle then gets threatened by a bully in a school bus and there's this like ominous, like, you're going to get what's coming to you, Lyle. He doesn't. It's never addressed. Uh, and then we have the final, the final act, which I think is about this question around death and dying. Uh, people dying. Will people die? Won't they die? Death is everywhere. Uh, we can't escape it. By my count, that's about seven plot lines. How many of those seven would you say were resolved? <laughs> Okay, I'm pretty sure we forgot about uh, the the romantic things dropped. That was never carried. The bug collection. Oh, yeah, the bug collection came and went. Um, That's true. They did find it. Well, they sort of they resolved it in that it got eaten by a mouse. <laughs> um, the bully dropped off. That didn't happen. No. So I think we mostly ended up focusing on this. I mean, the, the ADHD medication and uh, medicate versus segregate situation kind of, that was pretty forefront. Did we prove God's existence? 
I'm going to argue yes, okay. because of the final scene. Yeah. When he runs with David. And uh, I guess money was raised. Yeah, the fundraiser happened. Yeah. Okay, so they're batting like 80%. Yeah, I, you know, I'm kind of with Tom here, uh, TK. I, I think it, it may have broken some rules of traditional storytelling, but I don't think it was unsuccessful in, in doing so. Yeah, I, like, I, I think you're right. It was untidy, but I think there was a, like a story was told. Like, I feel like we were given a slice of life of these two boys, like a, a year of their time together. I have a hard time uh, following multi-plots and multi-characters. I've never been able to make it through Snatch. I've mm, tried yep. several times. And I, I, didn't, I didn't have any trouble following what was going on here. Yeah, no, I think it, was, it wasn't bad. There were also were, like, a surprising amount of actors in this. Yeah. Like, usually like the key to those low-budget films is there's like four people involved. There were like entire classrooms of people involved in this film. Oh yeah, I, I had the sense that we were genuinely in a school. This th There was a presence, there was a reality to it. Even if all of the characters seem to have this like retrospective sheen about them, right? Like the cop is just like a little too like 1950s like police officer at the cafe, you know, sitting on the bar stool. Like it was like a little too American Gothic in some character development. Yeah, and like the janitor, similarly, he's 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 a little overdone. He's yeah. great, but but a little overdone. He's a stud, and I'm in love with him. And I would 100, percent I would 100 percent marry a man if it was Mr. Mr. Mer Merrick. Yeah, they're both both of those characters seem to have like an underlying. This may have been a porno shoot that was oh, happening at the same time. Hundred percent. And they were just like, all right, so we'll take the clean bits for different drummer. <laughs> and then the hardcore bits we'll put over uh, for our janitor porn and our, our cop porn. Oh, there was that, a bit that... of a porny vibe to both these characters. The, the cop especially, he was having a hard time getting out of character when he dropped back into the kids movie. Yeah, 100%. He, like, he, just, he looked like he was a moment away from putting someone under arrest for being too sexy. <laughs> Now, if you are a film connoisseur, you will know that the real reviews are not to be found in the newspapers, but rather they are found in the Amazon review section. And do we ever have some goodies today? We have curated some phenomenal examples. Uh, Erica, there, there were a lot of phenomenal reviews for this film. Erica, why don't you start us off? I will happily start us off. So Robin S., one of many five out of five stars, review titled A Very Meaningful Story, bought this for my 89.5-year-old dad. He loved it and really enjoyed the two boys. This is not one of the, quote, happily ever after stories that I normally try to pick out for him, but he still gave it a thumbs up. Robin's got a lot of detail. A natural storyteller. A keen eye for detail. Yep. Her father is not 90 years old. I'm glad that he liked the two boys. Mm. That's good. I also like the idea that Robin is like trapping her father at home and just feeding him these happily ever after stories as some sort of like mental health treatment maybe, or like just trying to keep him optimistic about the world. And this one kind of like snuck in. I'm, I'm just also very curious that like this was bought. <laughs> right. <laughs> When and where was this purchased? 
That is actually a great question. Presumably off of Amazon, I suppose. Uh, I suppose she purchased this from Amazon, which then also begs the question, how did Robin S. find this film? Oh, well, naturally, while looking for happily ever after stories. Right. What's the co- the cover? We've got, if there's a wheelchair on the cover, you know it's a happy ending. It's going to uplift you. You're yeah. going to feel uplifted. But so this is what, actually, this is what, this is what I, I love about this review is that Robin deems this is not one of those happily ever after stories. I mean, no. uh, okay. I mean, I guess we do end with death. But arguably it is a, it is a sanitized death. Like it, it yeah. is positioned as like a, like a, a freedom that is bestowed upon this child. Like he, he is liberated from his impairment. Yeah. I think that's why this one caught me because when I, I, I think maybe this is a strange thing to admit, but when I read this review, I forgot that he died. And I thought, <laughs> because the death was not the sort of pinnacle moment of this film. It was definitely the moment when I almost peed myself <laughs> in this film, I will say. It is the most brazen movie ending I think I've ever seen. It takes a, a real tone shift. In that last 10 minutes. So much so that Robin's dad still gave it a thumbs up. Yeah, he liked it. He was there for the ride. Despite the death of one of those two boys he really enjoyed. (laughs) This is markedly different than the review uh, by Joshua Matthew Manabo Samarita, who also five out of five stars. However, quite disappointed was the title of this review. I will give this movie a five star, but I'm kind of disappointed. It feels like expectation versus reality. My expectation is there, though it is not enough. I thought this movie made me cry, but it was not. I still recommend this movie. It quite nice. (laughs) (laughs) It's so good. Joshua, you are a beautiful human, a beautiful soul. You wanted to cry. You didn't get it, but you're still going to pump the tires. Interesting, right? Robin and Joshua both had significant expectations of this film going in. High expectations. I guess, so like Robin was expecting happily ever after. Joshua was was expecting to cry, but I can only assume. He wanted to feel terrible. Yeah, I can only, I, oh, I was assuming it was like, I'm going to have a good cry, but then I'm still going to get my happily ever after. Like, I think maybe Joshua is just misidentifying what happened here. Joshua right. was actually quite disappointed because it was not quite the happily ever after that they were after. That's an interesting read. I thought this movie made me cry, but it was not. <laughs> I think that might be the, tr- the new slogan of this, of this podcast. I thought this movie made me cry, but it was not. That's my feeling about all of the movies we've watched for this so far. For something completely different, Melissa Lenzi, another five out of five. Title of the review, Donation. Review content, and I quote, a donation for Rainy Day Bingo Basket. Perfect. (laughs) May I pause it? That this is where Robin S. bought the video. Or received. 
received, right? <laughs> she received this one day playing bingo. Is is a is a rainy day bingo basket a thing? Like, is she saying that there's a lottery? Like, you just you know you just you pick up those discount DVDs at Walmart and chuck them in the rainy day bingo basket, and then when it's a rainy day, you just draw one out and give her a go. I think so. So my suspicion on this, I this is my hot take. I could be totally wrong. Melissa Lindsay, contact us if we're wrong on this. If I am mischaracterizing you, I suspect that Melissa Lindsay is an educator. I think that she may be a teacher, uh, whether that be public school or possibly a Sunday school situation. And I'm guessing that what she's doing is she's buying cheap things, like little trinkets and prizes. And then when the kids can't go out because it's raining, they play bingo and she gives that, they could choose something out of the basket. That's my theory. That's my fan theory of Melissa Lindsay. I like it. I like it a lot. If you were a child and you received this DVD for winning bingo, would that drive you to violence? I don't know if I would get this film as a child. Like, I don't think this is a kid's film. No, I don't know that this is an anyone film. <laughs> Can we just put that on the table right off the bat? Like, I, I, I the question of who this is for, uh, I think this is for Lyle Hatcher. Oh, 100%. that is who it is. This is an audience of one. I think I would probably turn this DVD into a weapon and try to stab someone if this was the prize I won. As a child, I would not understand why there were no real drummers in this film <laughs> until the absolute end. So a, may, a more nuanced, a more nuanced analysis comes to us from Francis, four to five stars titled, well-acted, layered message, very worth seeing. And that title is actually her review. The review <laughs> also reads, well-acted, layered message, very worth seeing. Would you say the message was layered in this film, Erica? I mean, if you think about all those plot lines, like lasagna layers, there was a lot going on. That is true. It was very tiered. I think tiered is mm. maybe what she means. <laughs> the other one that I thoroughly enjoyed uh, was by user Caddy. Five out of five stars. The review reads, in all caps, children's ministry period. Children enjoyed the DVD. Uh, <clears throat> we did just establish that this is not a children's movie, right? I believe so. I would love to know whether or not the children actually said that. I would really wonder. Uh, I also like that I respect the fact that she felt she needed to explain where she screened it. I mean, there is a, there's a fair bit of um, God... Yeah, God adjacent. Mm-hmm. Yep. I like the fact that this movie does not really lock down its religious. It like it is some sort of monotheist religion. But you know, it's not really pushing any particular brand of religion, provided it's like a monotheist. So, you know, any of those sort of old testament could fit under this rubric, maybe. And I think Erica, I think you have my other favorite. Oh, if we have time for one more, please, may I? I think so, because it's so good. Pootie Pie, untitled, but three out of five stars. 
it was okay. I didn't like the ending. Yeah. It was okay. I didn't like you know, the ending. There's a chance that I'm Pootie Pie. This is actually the exact same review I left on Titanic. <laughs> it was okay. I didn't like the ending. Yeah. Uh, I, I actually, you know, this is, this captures my feelings about this film. Do you think that, that Lyle and Dawn have read these reviews and are like, if we had just made a better ending, this would have blown up? See, I think where they aired is like, I think they essentially have two endings. Why did they not end it at the end of the telethon celebration? Had he run through the woods yet at that point? Because, no. yeah. <laughs> and they needed to kill him off in order for that scene to happen, I suppose. I just feel like maybe they could have, instead of killing him, just had him run through the woods as a like euphemistic, like, or more ambiguous. Like, right. So it's like maybe they did cure muscular dystrophy. Right. Exactly. Like, we didn't need to know for sure whether he died to enjoy him running through the woods. I would, I would argue that whether or not David died in real life, he was going to die in this film. It was destined to happen because death lurks around every corner. So we've heard what the experts have to say. Let's hear what the dunces have to say. Erica, where are you on this? Uh, I, like I said, I'm with PewDiePie. I didn't like the ending, but it was okay. I, I'm going way off the board on this one. I'm giving this sucker 4.5 out of 5 stars. Ooh. I think this movie was almost perfect in that it gave me everything I wanted, which was a horrible film that was just baffling most of the time. And I'm not even joking. I literally almost peed myself at the end of the film. I, it was very close, very close. I almost burst with fluids because I was laughing so hard. Can I just say, I hope that while bursting with fluids, you had your piss tube handy. This is the point at which we start to get into the nitty gritty, talk a little bit more about what happened here, what worked, what didn't, but where we always like to get started is unpacking a bit how this film, which was certainly a film about disability, how was disability portrayed in this film? A question that's a little bit hard to answer in some ways. This film chose, unlike a lot of the other films, I think it approached the story of disability not from the like the really hard biomedical perspective. There were no doctors really in this film. Uh, There wasn't like long descriptions of like biological uh, results of impairment. They really did try to like capture this through the lens of like two children trying to understand each other in some ways with two main characters that do have very different disabilities. So I would say that with with muscular dystrophy, there's this constant story uh, about how David, who has muscular dystrophy, presumably Shen, muscular dystrophy, is degenerating. 
he's getting weaker. There's all these sort of comments about how he's not able to do things, uh, how he remembers how he used to be able to walk and run. Now he can't. Uh, one of my favorite scenes uh, is when Lyle and David are comparing their thighs in the pool <laughs> and their legs in general. It was this bizarrely corporeal moment, which is also though like I I could see young boys doing this. Like it was essentially like a phallic measuring moment uh, in which we find out that David has enormous legs and feet and Lyle does not. We'll let the Freudians unpack that however they, they, they wish to see. But disability is really, really, I would say marked as, as being uh, a lack, a, a, like the individual is lacking in, in quite a few ways. Even if they are, David, I think, is marked as being quite smart. He's supposed to be sort of like a, a bit of a brainiac. And then in contrast, we have Lyle. Uh, I had not heard of this diagnosis before, minimal brain dysfunction. I was puzzled to piece together that this was uh, an ADHD. It, so we learn that uh, Lyle is at times overtaken by the feeling the feeling the this ominous um possession almost that mm -hmm. um it, it causes him to run um this was a little foggy for me too the the feeling i think suggests something more emotional needing it needing to run it off suggests something more emotional and so the the adhd label that we come to to realize it is was it just felt like a slight mismatch but um having said that i our research reveals that this film is essentially lyle's story this is lyle telling his own story his take on himself and his relationship with david and so understanding that this is lyle's self-narrative i mean I, i'm inclined to accept it for whatever whatever discrepancies there are, whatever I'm perhaps missing, I think it is um, Lyle's expression of himself and his experiences. So I'm, 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 I'm open to it. And I, um, yeah, I'm, I'm kind of here for that. Yeah, yeah. I The way that, and maybe it's just the actor, the way he delivers the first line when he's like, the feeling. I, I When I first watched this, I thought this was going to be like a psychosis. See? I got this thing. My brother calls it the feeling. It's kind of a problem. Okay. Well, I was wondering about it. I mean, what's it like? You know when little drummers kind of got to wind up? Yeah. You know when you wind them up and 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 you let them go and they go like this? Are you kidding me? That's what running is like? Running? I thought we were talking about the feeling. And I guess that what he's sort of talking about is like, it's the energy. It's that like electric kind of feeling, I guess, is where he, where it's coming from. But despite having the feeling, there was this weird, interesting dynamic with his family and feelings. What was that all about? Yeah, what was that all about? It, it felt, um, it did not feel organic to the film. It felt kind of forced that it was being like written into dialogue that like emotions are not allowed. And it was, interestingly, it was coming from the this mother. Like I think, so there's a scene where the boys are out playing and they get shot. I think- Yeah, Lyle, Lyle gets, uh, there's a gangbang drive-by pellet gunning. <laughs> yes. Where and did these kids grow up? 
right? <laughs> um, another scene that just came out of left field. He ran through private property. And then when he was running through the private property, there were these, uh, I'm going to say Antifa, uh, probably <laughs> warriors, on the private property squatting who had two rifles, who then proceeded to pellet and bludgeon Lyle to the ground from cutting through this private property. And so as Lyle is uh, back at home and his mom is, I think, tweezing the pellets out of his leg, she reminds him that he, he's not to cry. No like crying. There, there are no emotions allowed in this family. Mm -mm. Yeah, Lyle has just been experienced a attempted assassination and his mother tells him no crying. This is, this is interesting because this almost, I feel like with Lyle's ADHD, like there's this portrayal of him as almost too much. He's, you know, if, uh, if David is lack, Lyle is excess. He's just, he's just oozing with energy. He's running, he's climbing, he's loud, you know, he's just kind of bouncy. And so this, the, the no emotions narrative is almost like a, a reaffirmation that he is, he is excessive and needs to rein it in. And I feel like that's where I struggle with that definition that they are an unlikely friend grouping. Mm. Because I feel like this is a really common thing in film, right? Where they're like, this is like the opposites attract. It's the odd couple. Mm -hmm. like we've seen this story so often, right? Where it's like one of them is super energetic and running around and very physical all the time and high energy. And the other is quiet and slow and more thoughtful and He's sort of like the brain and Lyle is like the action. Uh, like this is like that movie, The Mighty. This is like, so, which might be another film we should probably watch for this. Mm. Uh, they're like, this is just like, this is actually a really common trope in stories about disability where they are like, well, if one of you is lacking something that we need to give the other one like this excessiveness. Mm -hmm. And then we put you together and together you almost form like one person. It's like you have enough when you're put together. Yeah, I mean, it's kind of a natural recipe for, for chemistry, like for, for har like harmony, some kind of balance. Right, yeah, like there's like this like weird yin yang kind of thing going on. Like what, but, what, can, what can these opposites offer each other? Right, and there, yeah, there is like completely this transactional kind of narrative mm -hmm. around this relationship too. Right, that like Lyle has the physicality, David has the like thought, the ideas. He's the ideas man. Does it play out such that David kind of brings Lyle up academically because they're working through the science fair and they're doing all of these cool, cool science things? And then on the flip side, Lyle and his all of his energy is sort of like working on David's physicality, like getting him more active. I think absolutely that's what's going on here, that that they are are balancing each other out. Like Lyle has a purpose through David, and it's the first time that he ever really like commits to anything, mm -hmm. as we've been sort of told in the film. I mean, I guess this is kind of reflecting the the overall fact that this is Lyle's story, but we see this play out in a few ways in the film. So Lyle takes on this sort of mixed quest to, I guess, maybe it's not that mixed. Lyle's quest is, is essentially to cure David. 
right? Like yeah. he, he wants to make him walk and he wants to raise money for him. Yeah, Presumably. to get him to run again. Yeah, to by curing. He, I think, I th- actually, I'm pretty sure he specifically says in the movie that he wants to raise money for researchers. Yeah, this is a bit of like a, this is like a, like, nature versus like uh, science versus religion, I think in some ways, right? Mm. And it is once they lean into science that David is smited. <laughs> they have the fundraiser to get a cure and David is killed. Right. So Almost immediately after. Really, God, God wins this science, religion. What is the word? It's not Debate? A Duel? <laughs> Duel. Debate. Schism? Ooh, could you make it all fancy? <laughs> Maybe, I don't know. Now, religion was a big part of this film, and it's tied directly, I think, to disability, specifically through these very strange inserted moments of Lyle's mother and often Lyle himself watching televangelist Jack LaLanne. And specifically the phrase, quote, the great physician above. I don't want you to get discouraged or anything to get in your way. At first, you'll think it's impossible. But believe me, if you just ask the good physician above for guidance and to give you the willpower to do the right thing, then I don't care what you do next. Wait a minute. What did you just say? Uh... What did you say right then about the good physician above? Oh, oh, what I said was, if you just ask the good physician above for guidance and to give you the willpower to do the right thing, then I don't care. Wait a second. Wait just a doggone second. Jack Lane said that on TV this morning. This whole thing is Jack Lane. The physician then becomes this apt metaphor for a higher power that has the power of life and death in their hands. And like, although it's a little clunky, Uh, It's not perhaps the best execution of it, but there are several moments where Lyle seems to be asking for David to give himself over to a higher power. He literally uses that kind of phrasing, but it's not quite as like obvious as it would be, I think, in other religious films where there's like this very like, you must give yourself to God in order to get the, the whatever. And that might be because this film seems to play into another common trope, which is the connection between disabled children and God himself. That's right. David is in commune with God. He speaks to God. God tells him things. He actually prophesizes things in the movie. He prophesizes the death of their teacher. So David is talking to God already, But Lyle is going to become this, like, spiritual leader to train him how to walk again. Tied always right with the question of God, though, is this question of death and dying, uh, which I think is another big trope that comes up a lot with disability, that proximity to death. Like, we are primed, like, right off the bat. David is going to die. Now, there is a bit of a playfulness, because it appears as though he's going to die in a wheelchair accident at the very beginning of the film is how it's sort of primed. Oh, I should mention, there's a flash forward in this film. If you weren't if you weren't sure about how many balls are in the air, uh, the movie begins with a, here's something you're going to see in about an hour and a half later. I think it was about an hour later, when they're going to run down the, down the road on the wheelchair and nearly die. Uh, but death is sort of constantly surrounding him. But it's also kind of also surrounding Lyle as well. And we get all these sort of talk about Lyle mm-hmm. having these sort of episodes that are p- perpetually putting people at risk. 
and particularly this belief that Lyle is going to be the death of David, that Lyle's excess is just going to like eviscerate the fragile body of David. So yeah, there's an interesting play with, uh, with Lyle being all about this excess being so big and so much for people to handle, but he's also lacking for, for reasons unknown. It is mentioned that he's colorblind very briefly. He's bad at school, of course, because, you know, he's having trouble sitting still and focusing, staying engaged. And we also see that he's, he's kind of unsuccessful with love. Interesting that he has some romantic exchanges at all, because we definitely notice that David doesn't have any of those. None. But a couple of times we see, uh, we see Lyle flirting with a young woman or professing his strong feelings for one of his classmates, uh, but um, but he's not he's not successful in love ultimately, and so we do see him we do see him portrayed as lacking in a couple of different ways. He seems to be positioned as really disliked within the school. Like Lyle does not appear to have friends until he meets up with David, uh, which I think it means that it's time for us to talk about. Uh, perhaps what went wrong in this film. Uh, some of the oddities, the strange things that we noticed, uh, the questions that are left uh, unanswered. And the first question that I have for you, Erica, professionally, uh, as an occupational therapist, <laughs> these two characters meet in the bathroom. They are uh, sent to the bathroom together, uh, which maybe that was a thing in the 60s. I don't know. And it is here where we are introduced to the way that David uses the toilet. Now, I myself, as a man with a physical disability, have never thought of or been instructed to use a PVC pipe to pee down and into a toilet and to mount this urine tube like a rocket launcher on the side of my wheelchair for ready access to my piss tube whenever I need it. My question to you, Erica, as an OT, how many piss tubes have you prescribed in your professional career? To date? Um, yeah, none. <laughs> that That's not a thing. I mean, I have I, seen piss in tubes but never a PVC pipe <laughs> with a chest strap attached to something that I could only describe as a poster holder. Yeah, that's not a thing. Yeah, the piss rocket immediately <laughs> got my attention. Oh, Jeff, I will not forget the day that you texted me long, so before, long before we had even discussed the podcast. The first time I saw this movie, in the midst of the movie, I immediately picked up my phone and texted Erica and asked her if in her experience she has ever seen someone using a piss rocket, a shoulder-mounted piss rocket. I have gone in, I've looked at, I cannot find any examples of this uh, in the world, like portable urinals, like the jug urinal things existed well before this movie, like well before the 1960s. I am baffled by this. Oh, it's 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 entirely impractical. 
like just like everything about it like if you were going to take a pipe like why would it be straight right why wouldn't it be curved right it, it's like an arm length tube inside like, how are six you, feet how are you going to wash it like how are you going to keep it just, just no, nothing nothing about this makes any practical sense you would have to be very far from the toilet extremely far i actually would argue this may only work in a urinal because i don't know if you would have the right like gravity i don't know that the wheelchair sitter would be high enough for the urine to run down the tube and into the toilet oh without Uh, it being like, like dipped right into the toilet water right yes um and whether or not your seat is actually higher like i'm not always higher than the toilet Mm -hmm. um they have those like really tall toilets right that for transfers uh where i think you'd be like peeing across like a plane you wouldn't get the gravity flow down and in fact it might actually roll back on you this piss tube would also smell just terrible oh yeah and it's right beside his head the entire movie yeah i can i mean this thing is it's just ridiculous in so many ways i i have i have I have maybe two two theories about about the piss tube. One is like it must have existed in real life. How could it not? There's no way someone would make this up. That's so. That's running theory one is that this was real, and f- who knows why? Maybe in uh, there. I mean, weren't they in Washington? Spokane, Washington. Yeah. Yeah. So it's not like they were in like a small isolated place where maybe they didn't have the same access to medical equipment like a urinal. The other, the only other theory is that for some reason, and again, uh, calling on our psychoanalysts, they just really wanted a very visible reminder of David's urine. I would, I wonder if this was about the gag, like that this was like they added this in because they thought it would be funny when they first met that Lyle would have like a, a moment. Uh, would have a condition, quote unquote, where he would grab the pipe, start swinging it around, and then use it like a trumpet. And which put, happened? Which happens? Hundred uh, percent. That is what <laughs> happens. And that's how they like bond. Like they bond over Lyle, essentially putting his mouth on David's penis, or at least putting his mouth where David's penis has been. Mm-hmm. And it's played up as a sort of like, ha ha ha, that's so gross. And I think it's like a boys will be gross thing, maybe. I don't know. Or maybe this is, as you said, about the fluids and about how Lyle is, like the, their, their friendship is is locked in because Lyle doesn't run away at the contamination mm. of the urine. His Yeah, his reaction is mild for having he just like, realized that he just put his mouth on someone's urine stick. He is like, that was inconvenient. (laughs) I probably shouldn't have done that. Will I do it again? Maybe. I think it's also germane to the conversation that there are several real photos of David on the internet uh, in some documentaries. And none of those photos include a shoulder mounted piss rocket. I don't know if they just take them off, take it off for photos, maybe, or this is completely made up, which leads to a big question. Does Lyle understand how David uses the bathroom? Mm-hmm. Or was this an assumption that Lyle has made over the years? 
I wonder if David had some other kind of device that he actually hung on his chair that Lyle just always fantastically presumed was a piss tube. This wasn't the only thing, though, that was a little weird about disability. I mean, this was, the film. this was the weirdest, though. And this one, I think, like, this one was weird in a way that the others were not. This one yeah. was uniquely weird, weird and unique to this film. The other, like, doing disability weirdly things were more, like, stereotypes. Oh, like, yeah. Obviously, Lyle or uh, David needs someone to go to the bathroom with him. There was uh, a good old head pat at least once in the film. There was that. And I think the other thing that was very common uh, about this film uh, was, was David's asexuality. Mm. Uh, you know, David is the really the only character that doesn't seem to have any sort of interest or active engagement in the world of sexual relations. Lyle has like a weird little obsession. David teases him about that obsession. David is friends with the girls. Uh, he has no problem talking to them, but shows no interest uh, otherwise in any of the women. Even We even meet David's brother's girlfriend. Mm -hmm. uh, like we meet everyone else's interest, but David is, is, is not sexual. He has no interest in, in the opposite sex aside from friendship. Uh, and I think it's that bound up in like physical disability, therefore not sexually active. Do you think there's any connection with like his closeness with God and his um, presumed imminent death? Mm. Like, did those, did those layer like a in piety there? thing, perhaps. Yeah. That's an interesting take. So carrying on with the uh, aspects of the film that we are not celebrating, shall we say, there was definitely that disability as requiring treatment or cure so we had the this pursuit to cure uh, muscular dystrophy interesting well i guess we were so we we have these two disabilities kind of running side by side in the film we've got the muscular dystrophy and adhd and clearly like a lot of emphasis on curing md I wouldn't say that it's curing ADHD that we're after, but there's this whole conversation about medication, uh, medicating Lyle in order to contain him. Yeah, I, I would say that there there is this interesting politics around the desire to cure David. Like There seems to be a, a desire for Lyle. Lyle is being let down and is more about the structural challenges that he faces. The mm. school just isn't set up right for him, mm -hmm. uh, presumably. Mm -hmm. I want to come back to this when we talk about what went right in the film, uh, because I do think that there were some, this was kind of a strength of the film is the fact that we have, you know, given that this is Lyle's perspective, everything around ADHD is first person. But I think that the, the flip side of that was that, and this is part of where the film goes a bit wrong, is that Lyle's telling David's story, making it all about this cure and overcoming. This is, this is a part that I think is really difficult when it comes to media studies and the representations of disability, because in this unique instance, we have a character with a terminal disability. At that, at this time, children with Duchenne probably weren't making it much past age 13, 14. They would have been dying quite young. Uh, that age expectancy is obviously a lot higher now, um, closer to 30 years old now, but it is still a terminal disease. Uh, and so on the one hand, it's, it's, there's this desire to eradicate the disability. But on the other hand, Lyle is trying to save his friend. Uh, it's like the, the death is the biggest issue. But 
at the same time, that's not how the film positions it. Because the real positioning is David needs to run again. David needs the freedom from the chair, not so much that David's going to die from this. And he does die from it eventually, but that is sort of seen as like maybe part of God's plan. And so really it was the walking that needed to be cured. And I think that's what really separates this film. You know, if, if it's a movie about somebody with a terminal disease and they're trying to survive, I think that's a completely rational, um, understandable, and, and that, that makes a lot of sense to me. But the weird focus on the running here, that it's, it's not just about saving his life. It really is about giving him a corporeal experience that he has lost and that is thought to be somehow meaningful, that has like a value that is urgently necessary for him. Well, the, the, okay, so I just, I, I want to jump back to Jack. His shtick was um, physical wellness as salvation. And like, we see this repeatedly on mom's television. So this was obviously something that was like, Lyle grew up hearing that sitting is going to kill you. You need right. to get physically active. So I don't know, maybe it's a little bit of a time capsule. That's um, fascinating. Yeah, yeah. And, and, and I, that's not the only, um, I think we could speculate, TV influence that has shaped the plot lines of this film. Because, yeah. because we know for a while that Lyle wants to raise money. And then we learn that uh, there's going to be a talent show at school. And I think we're, as, we're, as we were first presented to it, I thought like, oh, okay, we're just setting up one more thing that David for whatever reason, isn't going to be able to participate in. But then we realize that Lyle has decided that specifically he's going to walk on his hands for, yes. uh, what is it, like 100 yards or something, to raise yes. money. And then all of a sudden, as it starts to come together, we suddenly have essentially a telethon on our hands. Right. That is another one of my favorite parts of this movie. Oh, hands down. Is that this is a movie set in the 1960s. And as our beloved listeners know, I'm sure, the Jerry Lewis telethon starts in 1964. So this is happening right essentially at the start of the telethon. This film ends with essentially a variety show in which the children get up and do a bunch of talents and then culminates with a fundraiser. I think this is a telethon. Oh, I think you've missed a detail where firefighters are standing by waiting right. to collect donations. Absolutely. And of course, firefighters are, uh, most firefighter uh, firefighter charities are giving money to muscular dystrophy. Uh, that's their, their disability of choice, which I believe actually wasn't a thing yet in 1960, but correct me if I'm wrong. More forecasting. Yeah, I think this is that revisionist history that's happening with Lyle, where he's he's reflecting back on things. And I'm wondering how much of this story is like, this is how it happened, you know, hand of God, gospel truth, versus this is the way in which after a lifetime, Lyle is now reflecting back on his life. And he's seeing the ways in which pop culture aligns weirdly with his experiences, or he's kind of bent and mutated this the happenings to fit within this narrative. And maybe that was because of film. Like, I find it odd that they would have a talent show and science fair at the exact same time in the gym. That seems 
I don't, I've never seen that personally. Maybe that's common. I don't know. And so it's like they had this whole narrative of the science project. That's how they really are, like that's the bug story and possibly the proven God's assistance story. And they were like, well, but we also need to have him do this like feat, this physical feat for his friend, this show of strength for his friend who's so weak. So I think there's also that dichotomy happening here too, that they like, he needed it to happen. And so I'm wondering if it's like, he's thinking back and he's like, oh yeah, like the Jerry Lewis has, you know, that these sort of musical acts and these sort of carnival acts. And then it's all brought together under this to raise money essentially for, for, for MD. Now chronologically. So David is going to have an accident that's going to ultimately culminate in his death. Had that happened yet? Like did, was David sick already at the point of this show happening? I believe the implication here is they have the fundraiser and then immediately afterwards, David drowns. Okay, speaking of Revisionist, though, that scene was so much like the scene in the Sandlot. Like, I'm pretty sure it was based on that scene. Uh, Yeah, absolutely. Part of the reason why I think I laughed so hard is because it is so out of nowhere. Like, they have this great triumph, and you're assuming that this is like the denouement. You assume that this is going to be, they're just going to wrap this thing up. You know, they have a happy life or you know, maybe there'll be a black screen and it'll be like David died a year later or whatever. Uh, and I, everyone is, I assumed this was going to end after the charity fundraiser. It's a big success. He raises all this money. He proves the, the evil principle wrong. But then, no, they're like, well, no, we, no, David has to die and we're going to watch it. And we now get this additional, I think it's about 15 minutes in which David drowns. We watch him drown. And then he dies moments later from complications resulting. That's true. According to David's mother, David did in fact have a drowning in his family pool. And it wasn't long after that that he passed away. Now, where that happens in terms of the actual timeline of events, unclear. But according to the movie, it appears to be fundraiser dead six months later. This is definitely a weird point of transition into talking about what went right. But I think that what you just described, a potentially rapid descent from from being pretty healthy to death, like it, it can happen. That, that yep. captures something that can be very real. Obviously, the historical inaccuracies or the, you know, the fantasies that are kind of interwoven with the retelling um that's it's a, you know it's a natural part of retelling a story but if i could kick off our what went right or what what did this movie do well i want to come back to that point that this is lyle's story and i think i felt watching the movie that the whole theme around adhd was actually treated quite well we end up it's not intended to be the focal point of the story i don't think Maybe it is. I mean, if you think about the fact that this is, you know, it's called different drummers, it's sort of implying that we have, I think, like, those who march to the beat of their own drum are oddities, they're different people. And, you know, it's not different drummer. It's not a story. David, it's a story about these two different drummers, these two oddballs that for whatever, they're they're odd in their own ways, but they've united. It's a story about friendship. But the, the telling And again, this goes back to that review that was pretty generous with the film, despite remarking that it was kind of all over the place. Like, I almost feel like there was also in the narrative structure, sort of a portrayal of Lyle's 
somewhat scattered balancey mind so we like you know i think that's a reality of life for someone who has struggle holding attention that there are a lot of stories that are all very pressing and they all need to be told and they might not fit neatly together but that's how my brain works so that's the story you're getting really a sharp contrast because i i saw a lot of those sort of typical narratives about David that were sort of this other perspective on disability, um, which I think is just always a trap that you're going to fall into when you have the person without lived experience telling the story. But the flip side of that and something really unique about this film then was uh, Lyle telling his own story and this sort of nuanced conversation that came up around um, whether to medicate or segregate and sort of the politics around medicating Lyle for this uh, condition or for the symptoms that were really less bothering him and more bothering other people. Absolutely. I, I don't think we've ever been more aligned on something. I love the fact that this film, the portrayal of ADHD is predominantly not comic in nature. Like Lyle is, is presented as kind of a funny and goofy little guy, but he's not your typical like bouncing off the walls like wild person by any means. Uh, and I think, as you said, I think the storyline actually represents that in a really interesting way, in a way that has way more nuance than your typical understandings of, of ADHD. And I honestly loved the actual complexity that was given to this medication story, right? About whether or not to, to medicate Lyle and the pros and cons, the financial impact, the pressure from the school, I feel like that storyline probably rings very true to a lot of people with ADHD, whether or not it was in the 1960s or in the 2010s. That, that, was, a, that was a good, that was just a, a solid, solid strength for me. I liked, I liked the fact that the principal eventually becomes the only real villain in this film. Mm -hmm. uh, I think that that Lyle is extremely gentle and, and, and really uplifting towards his teachers and obviously the janitor, especially. Uh, he sees in all of these people, friends of his and yeah. in his parents, he sees friends and allies and supporters. In David's family, he finds friends and allies and supporters. At the end of the day, it is only the principal who is a monster <laughs> and hates Lyle more than anything. Even the police seem to love this little guy. And I actually thought it was interesting how it's like, you could see the like creative process and Lyle as he's presumably writing this being like, oh, right, but I did, I kind of liked my teacher in grade four and <laughs> yeah, the janitor was kind of nice, but I need someone mean. Well. I didn't like the principal. The principal was the worst. So we'll make her, her the villain. But I want to know. So at the end of the film, Lyle proceeds with his plan, which the principal has been against the entire time. The principal then goes into the bathroom and cries. What did that scene mean? It was a baffling scene for all involved. If you remember, I think she was in conversation with the cop she at was. the time. And the cop is baffled. Everyone is baffled. Nobody really understands. Although, you know, the fact that you brought it up, I kind of suspect that you have a take on this. I don't. I am still baffled to this time. After several watches, I do not understand 
why the principal goes to the bathroom and balls. I don't know if it's, maybe the irony of it is that she seems to be having a bit of a breakdown. She's doing that kind of like sobbing, laughing, crying mm-hmm. and she's hiding. And so I don't know, maybe there's something around like she's trying to medicate this child for not being able to contain his excesses. And now she's hiding out in the bathroom so that nobody else can witness her excesses. Mm, maybe it's a moment of of allyship. Self-realization, or not self-realization, but like uh, introspection. Or- right. She realizes that she's the bad person, maybe. How did you feel about the near-death experience? Honestly, I loved it. I, I think uh, characterizing it as a near-death experience <laughs> makes me sound kind of sadistic for saying that. But <laughs> let, let me see how to, how to explain why I loved it. I loved it because it was so normal. There was no, there was no stereotype. There was nothing. It was so organic. It's a scene mm-hmm. in which these two mischievous boys decide like, hey man, you wheel. This is a big hill. You know, let's rip. <laughs> let's run up this hill and fly down it together. Yeah. Right. Yeah. And so like, this is the whole, like Lyle's going to kill David. <laughs> right. Yes. Right? <laughs> but like, it's not even, you know, they're fully in it together. Like it was totally that like, yeah, let's do this. And like so much joy, totally normalizing the chair, like Lyle's, you know, hop on bud riding on the chair and they're flying down and it's like oh god what's gonna happen is this when he's gonna die what's gonna happen you like there's a lot of emotion but the 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 beauty of the scene to me is just all about that it's so it just feels so normal I don't know maybe you can speak to whether this is real because like (laughs) did you do this as a kid absolutely uh when I was a kid both my manual and electric wheelchair there was so much play What I found interesting about this scene, and I think because in some ways, this scene is a microcosm of all of the technical things that are wrong with this film. Uh, When you think about this from like a a film production analysis, whatever. So this film is set up as the climax at the very start of the film. This is not the climax of the film. This is like the midway point of the film. So I don't know why it teases it at the very beginning. And then we arrive at it it happens and yeah it's a part of the plot but it's certainly not the climax you assume it would be it's not and as it's happening as a viewer you're sitting there and you're like i have no idea where this is going to go are they going to wipe out and die maybe are they going to get run down by a car and die maybe are they going to arrive at the bottom and nothing bad will happen maybe (laughs) all of these things could have happened at the end of that scene and it fundamentally would not have changed the film. Like there, there is this sort of like subplot that as a result of it, maybe Lyle and David shouldn't be friends anymore. But you could have just taken that entire subplot out, essentially. Uh, and the movie is still pretty much the same. Mm-hmm. It doesn't really necessarily change the film. So I'm like, you are, you're forecasting a scene that doesn't actually have a ton to do with the film, even if it does give a good representation of their relationship. Uh, and then the scene happens and some things happen and it moves the plot forward, I suppose. Uh, but it's still kind of a strange scene that's just like shoehorned in. I also am very impressed that the two actors got as far down the hill as they did in this clearly rickety wheelchair. 
Oh yeah, that was the other possibility that you didn't mention. Was that like a wheel was going to pop off and they were just right? That like this thing it. just like they like full send down the hill, and the chair just literally rips itself apart, and that not even as a scripted part of the film. That's just <laughs> happened. <laughs> this is a really sketchy a metal wheelchair they're using. But I think you're right. Like I, I I think the fact that that the wheelchair becomes a part of their play is I think actually pretty representative, and I I would not doubt for a moment that this happened and that both David and Lyle were equal conspirators in the play to go down the hill. Mm-hmm. And just when do you see that? Like you don't, that that's never, that's like, I feel like that's the joy. That's the cool stuff. And nobody ever tells that story. So of course we've talked about David's death, but David's death is not actually the end of the movie. It keeps going after this for just a very stereotypical and unintentionally hilarious ending. Erica, take us through the end of this film. Oh, the cringe factor is so big. (laughs) So (laughs) the movie was supposed to end after the romp down the hill. It didn't. Then the character died briefly came back to life and then he died again. So after David dies for the second time, Lyle finds out and as Lyle is prone to, he's overcome with the feeling. The feeling. And he takes off running and he runs through the woods. He heads back to, you know, the places that he and David have spent time together and who should appear next to him but David running (laughs) in death, achieving the goal that Lyle had for David's life. And then a freeze frame. So that you will always remember etched, etched in your consciousness, David Mm -hmm. running. These films seem to desire the character must escape the chair by the end, by some way, by any way. And and maybe that way is death. But we see the exact same thing at the end of Theory of Everything, where it's like you could not end the story of Stephen Hawking without walking. And he wasn't dead yet. So instead they have to like construct this scene where Eddie Redmayne gets up out of the wheelchair and picks up a pen for an attractive woman. Freudian. It's similar in this film. It's like there's this desire, like David has to run in this film. And I thought it was going to end when uh, Lyle puts David on his back and they sort of piggyback and run around. And I thought, okay, so they've run, they've, they've wrapped that storyline up. But no, they had to have this like post post, not postpartum. What is that? Postmortem? Postmortem. <laughs> they have to have this postmortem uh, although maybe actually postpartum might describe much of this film uh, because it was a sadness after it was born. There's this, there's this desire, this postmortem that has to happen where he has to be seen running. He has to overcome. He has to get out of the wheelchair. It's the payoff that we have been promised by this film. And this is where I say, this is a film clearly trying to sort of end on 
an inspirational note. It's like they thought, well, it's too big of a bummer to end with David dying. So we'll end with maybe they did get to run once in the sun uh, in the forest where they used to play. Alrighty, so we have gone through the critical reception of this masterpiece. We've run through our hot takes, but this isn't just a fictional story. This is very much one that is maybe not even inspired by reality. This is a true story. This is, this is based on real life. So we have some good possible facts, some hot trivia to uncover. I think we need to start by asking the obvious question here. Jeff, which is, why does David wear your wardrobe? Was he involved <laughs> in the creation of this film? <laughs> so I think that they may have broken into my house because David wears definitely more than one cardigan that I'm 90% sure I own and several other great little combos of pants uh, and, and sweaters. David does not seem to have my shoe taste he is not a sneakerhead. I don't know if that means that David was very fashion forward or if I dress like a 1960s child. <laughs> it's unclear. Maybe this but, is a both and. Has anyone ever mistaken you for David? For David. That has not happened yet. Uh, in fact, if that becomes a thing, I would actually be thrilled uh, if people were like, oh, aren't you that guy from Different Trevor? It would be a phenomenal, a phenomenal turn of events in my life. I think you just need to start promoing the film a little harder. So we've talked about chairs before. Is this uh, the chair in this film? Is this one that you have also had at some point in your life? <laughs> this was this was a, a frustration for me. I have been trying to track down what this wheelchair is, who made it, uh, what type of wheelchair it is. Uh, it appears to have a relatively generic frame. However, there are some oddities, particularly around the footrests, that mm. I have been trying to track it down. I do not know what type of wheelchair this is. I am not able to identify it. If one of our uh, lovely listeners knows what kind of wheelchair this is, uh, please let us know, because uh, we're going to be keeping track of all of the brands uh, that get shout-outs in these films, uh, whether it be through usage or possibly direct product placement. Read that the actor who played Lyle uh, was, there was a good amount of effort that went into casting Lyle. They really shot for a kid that looked like him and not just looked like him, but was like him. Recruited from a Christian school, seventh grader, just like Lyle in a lot of ways. And he said, not only did he himself, uh, I don't know if he described himself as having ADHD, but definitely as a hyper and everywhere, kind of all over the place kid, um, but also had uh, mentioned that he had a disabled sister who used a wheelchair, um, which mm -hmm. I think is fascinating because another one of those opportunities in the film to um, probably approximate reality and the representation a little bit better. Like I think the more people that have lived experience on the set involved in the film, you're probably gonna get a better outcome, a more accurate outcome. Yeah, that, and that actually might speak to why their relationship felt kind of authentic mm. in some ways, because this was like this, this, this actor, Braden, 
was able to kind of tap into things that he himself he probably has also ridden down a hill on his sister's wheelchair yeah. <laughs> uh, at some point uh i think i think that's really fascinating they actually do look kind of similar photos of young lyle comparatively is is fascinating uh, but there does seem to be this this interesting uh, connection with disability kind of throughout the film which is something that we didn't really expect when we started this project, mm -hmm. we presumed it was going to be a lot of non-disabled people talking about the disabled, and and that's not the case for this film. Yeah, I mean, I think when you're looking at when you're looking at when you know that the end of the film is this uh, kid who can't walk regains the ability to walk, you have pretty low expectations for the rest of the film. <laughs> right. Yeah, the bar is already quite low. And uh, although. I it doesn't say that on the box. It's very, very early in the film, pretty clear that that is where this is going. Oh yeah, yeah, yeah. Like David is going to die or walk and bless these creators, <laughs> we got both. Do you have any hot trivia to bring to this? Uh, I have a few things. So there's two things that I've been really thinking about. So number one, there is a lot of content about this film uh, that has been made presumably by Lyle Hatcher and and Don Caron, Don Caron, uh, the other uh, co-writer and director. They have a YouTube channel. They've made documentaries about this film. They have all sorts of content. They have like on the DVD, there's all this like teaching tools and other materials. Uh, they've really wrapped this movie up into a real package. And as a result, we actually get some really interesting stories about where this film came from. And so it is confirmed by David's real mom in one of the documentaries that David did in fact have a quote series of prophecies that were shared to him by God. Uh, David apparently predicted the birth of a daughter, uh, a family friend I believe uh, was, uh, they didn't know was pregnant. He predicted that she was not only pregnant but had a daughter that happened. And he did in fact predict the death of his teacher. What is not shared in the film uh, exactly, it's kind of hinted at, uh, the teacher was apparently chronically ill. So I don't know if this is exactly a prophecy so much as uh, kind of an inevitable conclusion. But I think this notion of David as prophet, I think explains this film in some ways. Because I would argue that different drummers, as much as it is about telling Lyle's story, what I think this movie is really about is about canonizing David. I wonder if this is about trying to get David like a sainthood status mm -hmm. to show these miracles that David produced. And there's this amazing quote from Lyle Hatcher, the real Lyle Hatcher in one of the documentaries where he's talking about why he made it. And let's roll that clip. Over the last 40 years, I kept going back to the places that David and I, where we had our adventures, our friendship, all the fun places and the fun things we did together, the open fields, the, the hills, the river, the school. There was something that constantly kept pushing me back in that direction. Every single time I would go back, I would remember something different, something unique, and maybe something that gave me comfort and to some degree strength, something that I was missing that I left behind. The memories of David and I have been haunting me. I need to know why. Why would something like this stay with me for 45 years?
Lyle is haunted by David's presence, mm. quite literally haunted by it. It stuck with him. And he goes on to tell this story about how he went on a hike uh, up a mountain and a thunderstorm happened. And he took that as a sign that, quote, David and our friendship should be a movie. He then proceeds to work for eight and a half years to write, fund, produce, and eventually film this movie with the help of a local film studio guy named Don Caron. Uh, it went from like a five-page script into a full-fledged feature film, which was put out in theaters and people went and saw it. It made uh, just under 20000 I believe, in box office, which I also believe is well below the budget of this film. I think they spent a ton of money on this movie and I don't believe they made it back, but that might be wrong. And uh, if I'm wrong, good for you. Uh, that's great. But I, I think that the way that Lyle talks about the film really reveals that this isn't just about his own personal narrative, which we both actually thought would have been better, perhaps, as being the focus of this. But really, I think this is about the like the mystical religious relationship between disabled people and God, higher power, whatever it might be. This idea that just as in Miracle on Lane 2, God doesn't make mistakes that David's disability provides him this deeper connection uh, to, to a higher power, which I think we're going to hear a lot in many of these films. And like, this is fascinating. It really, it is, it's fascinating that, that this is a story that gets told and retold, that people feel so profoundly touched by their brushes with disability. That it literally haunted him. And he had to tell the story. He had to, maybe this is an act of remembrance. Uh, maybe it's an act of, of revealing a life that is otherwise not talked about or not shared, not honored perhaps. But I, I think I'm with you. I think these are actually stories that are continually honored, continually shared. And to the point that it's the only story that we start to hear is about these disabled people who are troubled, they have a hard life, but they have this connection with God, which maybe makes it worth it or implies that there's a rational reason for it to happen, that sanitizes it in some ways, and then allows them to be, to stand as these sort of religious objects. So Lyle then is able to show his compassion through his ability to care for, for David, to support David and to love David. I think we're, we're making a very natural slide out of trivia and into final thoughts here. So Erica, final thoughts on Different Drummer. My final thoughts on Different Drummer are that I am once again surprised. I came in pretty ready to tear this apart. And for all, all of its problematic tropes and representations, I am pleasantly surprised to find through deeper analysis some merit. I once again hesitate to give this film too much praise, but you know, we're not really here to judge the film itself. We're we're really here to talk about how did it treat disability. And I think it it treated disability in some decently realistic ways. And it uh, through the stories that it told, it has certainly made for some 
thought-provoking conversation. When I think about different drummer, and I think about this broader project of a villain culture, I'm struck by this question about whether or not it is possible to both make a good movie and a progressive movie at the same time. Because it appears, though, like objectively, Different Drummer is a bad movie. It is like poorly made. It is it is all over the place. I think all of the critiques of this film are completely accurate from like a, a film perspective. I do not recommend this film to anybody. And so then we have to ask ourselves, is the general audience, is the truth of disability an aesthetic that actually lends itself to movies that we perceive as powerful, evocative, interesting, artistic, or good. Can we actually make a good movie on both sides of that equation? A technically good and also disability good. I wanna say yes. I wanna believe that that's possible. But I wonder how many of these movies that make good points are getting bogged down by the ways that they don't reflect what is presumed to be examples of good disability art. So this movie doesn't break through because it's not Rain Man. And people are left looking at it as a bingo bargain bargain bin uh, purchase, as opposed to some sort of legitimate artistic interrogation of childhood with various disabilities. But at the same time, it's a bad movie. Well, and I, I think like we're definitely being generous with it, but uh, I think one of the traps that we see here and that we are likely to see time and again is that these are other narratives. These are not people telling their own story. These are people telling someone else's story. And so I think that we are always, they sort of, these films lack the technical success to bring these stereotypical tropes, which people love, our mm-hmm. Amazon reviews confirm. Absolutely. Right? But they, they lack the technical um, quality to bring these lovable, mainstream lovable stories to success, but they lack the, um, the storytelling power of uh, a narrative that's grounded in lived experience. And I, like, again, that's, that was, that was what made this film for me was that it had that aspect. So I think we carry on in our quest to find some first person narratives that are like people who set out to tell their own story. My hot take for tonight's episode, our closing thought, we are not going to see any self-representation on this podcast because I don't think that those films will reach our high low bar for trashy trashy content and so concludes another episode of invalid culture did you enjoy the episode have a good time why don't you tell a friend about it tell them right now send them a message email them or message them on tiktok or wherever it is you're socializing tell them to check out this podcast Do you have a film that you think would be great for us to cover? Do you want to torture us with a terrible movie you once watched? Awesome. Go onto our website, invalidculture.com, and send us your worst films. And who knows, maybe you will get to hear an episode in which we cover it.
So thank you again for tuning in. And until next time, take care and we'll talk to you soon.